content warning, today's page will deal with implied sexual assault and we will discuss sexual assault. Welcome back to the Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read a page of the Wise Man's Fear and then talk about it in excruciating detail. This is page 858. I gave a deep sigh. It won't kill you. It'll just make you miserable. You'll throw up and be weak with muscle cramps for a day or two. I raised the cup, offering it to her. What do you care if they kill me? She asked tonelessly. If they don't do it now, they'll do it later. I'd rather die. She clenched her teeth before she finished the sentence. They didn't poison you. I poisoned them, and you happened to get some of it. I'm sorry, but this will help you over the worst of it. Crin's gaze wavered for a second, then became iron hard again. She looked at the cup, then fixed her gaze on me. If it's harmless, you drink it. I can't, I explained. It would put me to sleep, and I have things to do tonight. Crin's eyes darted to the bed of furs laid out on the floor of the tent. I smiled my gentlest, saddest smile. Not those sorts of things. She still didn't move. We stood there for a long while. I heard a muted, retching sound from off in the woods. I sighed and lowered the cup. Looking down, I saw Ellie had already curled up and gone to sleep. Her face looked almost peaceful. I took a deep breath and looked back up at Crin. You don't have any reason to trust me, I said, looking straight into her eyes. Not after what has happened to you. But I hope you will. I held out the cup again. She met my eyes without blinking, then reached for the cup. She drank it off in one swallow, choked a little, and sat down. Her eyes stayed hard as marble as she stared at the wall of the tent. I sat down, slightly apart from her. In fifteen minutes, she was asleep. I covered the two of them with a blanket and watched their faces. In sleep, they were even more beautiful than before. I reached out to brush a strand of hair from Crin's cheek. To my surprise, she opened her eyes and stared at me. Not the marble stare she had given me before. She looked at me with the dark eyes of a young Denna. I froze with my hand on her cheek. We watched each other for a second. Then her eyes drew closed again. I couldn't tell if it was the drug pulling her under or her own will surrendering to sleep. I settled myself at the entrance of the tent and lay Cezura across my knees. I felt rage like a fire inside me, and the sight of the two sleeping girls was like a wind fanning the coals. I set my teeth and forced myself to think of what had happened here, letting the fire burn fiercely, letting the heat of it fill me. I drew deep breaths, tempering myself for what was to come. That's the page. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. The first thing that I want to talk about is at the bottom of this page, Quoth is letting rage like a fire burn inside him, and he's using that as fuel. Does that remind you of anything? No. I I I feel like it should, but I my brain is tired, so you tell me. <laughs> I think Nick is trying to draw a connection here between what Quoth is feeling and the Adam idea that men have too much anger in the in the Adam philosophical sense of that term, and the Commonwealth folktale about the Adam that they hoard their words and burn them like fuel to to make themselves good fighters. Oh. Yeah, that that is what I was getting at. That this, I think it's really funny that Jeremy, who was like, "Nope, I have nothing to say," ended up explaining it. 
<laughs> I mean, I know what Nick's getting at. I just don't think that it's, I guess I don't think that it's deliberate. Oh, I'm I'm sure it's deliberate. I think enough time has passed that we won't see that that continuity unless we're looking for it. But I think this is very much like the idea of someone hoarding an aspect of themselves to burn it as fuel. Uh, the idea that Quoth's name, one of his names is the flame. And now we have this depiction almost explicitly of him intentionally stoking anger in himself so he can use it explicitly again to burn it like fuel to fuel him for what is to come. I think this is hard to take any other way. I'm not saying it's magic. I'm just saying that it's like, it's a stark metaphor that speaks to how this character processes things and what motivates him. But it's also a cliche. Like the idea of anger fueling you is, uh, and I don't mean cliche in like a negative sense. It's just like, that is a really common idea that you see in all kinds of stories. So I don't think that there's any reason to connect that with the much more specific idea of using words as fuel or the much more specific idea uh, of the Adem notion of anger. I read this as evidence that one of Quoth's driving uh, motivations, I suppose, is his anger, which he probably processes as like, resentment at the injustice of the world he doesn't strike me as a particularly angry character he certainly has like little moments and they talk about his eyes flashing but if i was to describe this character i wouldn't articulate him as angry maybe this resonates with me because of my own issues with anger like i am also not an angry person but i process anger in a way that uh has is is tied into you know to my triggers and my bipolar disorder and i've I've learned to unpack that a little bit. So I understand like you can be an angry person and be motivated by anger without necessarily like lashing out and acting angrily. And so I see this as like at his core, it's the anger at this injustice that he and others have had to experience. That is what drives him. And that's what is motivating him here. And that's how he's getting himself psyched up to, do what must be done as he uh, puts it that that is an idea that i can wholeheartedly support and i think that there's a lot of evidence in the text to back that reading up and that there's two things that i want to sort of call upon i I think that in a vacuum there's an element of this scene that is part of a sexist trope of like women in a story being raped or murdered uh, or otherwise defiled or, or or harmed purely in order to advance the story of a man. It's sometimes referred to as fridging. uh, And it is uh, a troublesome trope that I think most modern storytellers have enough good sense to try and like shy away from uh, because it, you know, treats women as just like objects to further a man's narrative rather than as characters in their own right. I actually think that's not the whole story of what's happening in this scene. I think Quoth is angry on what's behalf of being done of, of what's being done to these girls And I think that he is, you know, one layer down, he is subconsciously connecting one of them with Denna. And I think that he is displacing some of his uh, resentment about the troubles that Denna has making her way in the world and the ways in which Denna maybe doesn't have as much sexual agency as she would like. Or, But if you delve one layer farther down from that, 
Quoth is also a survivor of sexual assault. So when he's getting angry about what's being done to these girls, he knows exactly what's being done to these girls because it's being done to him. And I think that this is an opportunity for him to revenge himself on a world that allowed that to happen to him as well as to these women. And I think that that makes it more more compelling than the than the more standard uh, fridging narrative. It's not quite that simple. I do want to talk about the moment where he touches Crin's cheek, which I think one could look at in a negative light. And I wonder if today's Rothbus would write this scene the same way. Um, I have I have a take, but I want to, in particular, invite Jordana uh, to sort of weigh in. How do you interpret this exchange? Yeah, uh, I have like a, a general rule for like that sort of goings ons, and and it's if you wouldn't do it while they're awake, don't do it while they're asleep. <laughs> like that's just a that is like like if it's awkward for you if they wake up in the middle of you doing something then you probably shouldn't be doing it <laughs> that is a good rule of thumb you not think he'd do this while she was awake well they kind of have like a weird pause so and and i think that he knows that she's not really comfortable with that so i think out of respect while she's awake he wouldn't but it shows a little bit of disrespect while she's asleep to do it while she's asleep. Like he doesn't think she'll mind. So he can't help himself or something like that. But like, I think like the rule stands, like I do not think he would do this while he was awake because like he knows she wouldn't like that. He's smart enough to figure that out. She obviously is suspicious of him. He stated that she has no reason to trust him. And would you want someone you don't trust touching your face? No. (laughs) Like, yeah. I totally hear what you're saying in the scene as presented to us. I think we're meant to understand him as being tender and, and Oh, I don't disagree with that. I think that the way that we understand how like traumatized people behave things like, you know, things like triggers, things like post-traumatic responses, we all might just like know better than to like, given what this person has been through, she probably doesn't want anybody touching her at all. Right. Yeah, and you would um, think that Quoth would would know better, that he would clue into that. But I'm going to let you finish. But I, uh, my uncharacteristically charitable read on Quoth's actions in this scene uh, say otherwise. But you go ahead, and then I'll offer my two cents. Well, I just think that that's how we're meant to read it. And tastes have changed. The way we depict this sort of thing has changed. I think, generally speaking, Rothfuss does a very tasteful job of handling this stuff. I can also see how someone would be bothered by Quoth doing that. Like, I'm not personally bothered by it, but were I in Crin's shoes, I'd be pissed. <laughs> exactly. And so I think that's what's important. Like, I think that in, in the story, Quoth reaches out kind of without thinking because he has assumed this, like, tender, protective state. She reminds him of Denna. So I... I would almost feel better about it if there was a little line in here that says like without thinking or I reached out to touch her to, to, cause he's like, not just like caressing her cheek, right? He's just moving some hair off her face, I guess also ostensibly to like help her be comfortable. You know, I, I do read it as, as nothing but like tenderness, but I think what's important and what I take from the, the next exchange is that when she opens her eyes and meets eyes with him, I take that exchange as her going, okay, I trust you. Like the fact that she goes, she closes her eyes and goes back to sleep instead of going like, what the hell man? 
why are you touching my face after I close my eyes? Instead, she goes like, I understand and I trust you and I'm going to sleep and let you, you know, take care of me. That's that's what I see as being the important exchange here. Yeah. And I think it's it's perhaps lost because, as you say, tastes have changed and it's now quite distasteful to after the exchange we've just seen have our protagonist like reach out to touch the face of a sleeping person who, you know, probably wouldn't want to be touched without consent. But I I do read this exchange as like, and that's also why I, I am also kind of resistant to the idea that this is a fridging because I read this as a moment of agency. I read this as a moment of Crin saying, I accept, uh, you know, I accept your help and I am going to trust you. I choose to do so. Yes, absolutely. I agree that I think that that is meant to be like, I guess the subtext is that, am I using that word correctly? Yeah, I call that subtext. But I think today in, in the world of like spoken consent that we live in where like things can't just be what you assume. Um, I do think that it is kind of distasteful and I don't think Rothfuss would have written it the same day today, the same way today. Yeah. I, I think we're meant to understand that when she opens her eyes and they are she looks back at him with the eyes of a young Denna. That is her giving her consent. I think that's what we're meant to understand. Yes, but. <laughs> like, it, because it's not explicit, and in today's society, consent should be explicit. Like, I think that that's why it wouldn't be written the same way today. Agreed. Just looking at the rest of the page, that was the real meaty part that I wanted to talk about, was the fire and the uh, the, the touching. What else can we discuss on this page? In general, like, A, there's some neat exposition that is dealt with very quickly. Like, you know, Kvothe explains to them and to us, like, you know, I poisoned the stew. I am trying to make sure that you don't have it as bad as everyone else outside. I don't know. Rothfuss does so much mood setting and uh, conveys so much horror in a very understated way, at least to my to my mind. Like, this is not lurid at all. This is not sensational but the real key lines for me are her saying like why do you care if they kill me if they don't do it now they're going to do it later i'd rather die and she doesn't finish what she's going to say but she's going to say like i'd rather die than live like this another moment you know like she she wants to die that line also kind of changes my understanding of what they're going to do like obviously she might be wrong about this but she seems to think that she is just their sex slave now like they're not going to sell her into prostitution somewhere else you know, they're not going to ransom her back to her family. They're just going to keep doing what they're doing with her until they can't do that anymore. And then they'll kill her is what she thinks is going to happen. And that's not that we have to quantify, you know, moral evils, but that's really horrifying. It's a measure of just like what kind of life this person has been living for the past, you know, few weeks that when Quoth says, I have things I have to do tonight. And she immediately looks over at the first in the tent, like he brought me into this tent. God, what's he going to do to me? And Quoth just says like, not that kind of thing that conveys the to me like the horror that she's gone through without ever having to like say it out loud if that makes sense reasonable mm-hmm. yeah i think it would be we talked about distasteful actions it would certainly be extremely distasteful to have a to have it spelled out in those terms jeremy so i had a thought i think it is handled rather deftly jordana you have a thought so when close trying to get her to drink the beverage why doesn't he just like leave it with her like she doesn't have to drink it right now right couldn't she just wait and see well she's gonna start getting sick soon he has to count it's counter toxin right right but if she doesn't believe him then he could just be like you know what just 
here's the drink. You think about it. I'm not going to. Like, well, he does, basically. Well, like, I guess in, um, it's more of like a writing decision on Rothfuss's part. He, he chooses to have her take the drink and drink it. Whereas he could have chosen to have her take the drink and then sit with Quoth for it. And then drink. Okay. Yeah, I I, well, I see this as I'm being know. pedantic on purpose. I'm just <laughs> I just you know I'm just doing the thing. Yeah, I think it's it's expedient to you know keep them safely unconscious for what's ha- about to happen. You know, there's there's not like a, a factor in the action scene that's coming, and it also exactly. lets Quoth sit in silence and and alone over them, so he can stoke his anger. Yeah, so it does serve those very important plot mechanics, but I also think it is meant to indicate like that moment where she chooses of her own free will to drink the thing is her saying to Cloth, okay, I trust you enough that you're not going to like do something nasty to me, so maybe you're all right. Like that is that is an indication of her changing her mind about him. Meh. Which is really important because we need to know that she knows that she is safe with him for her to fall asleep in this tent with him. The rest of the scene doesn't work if she hasn't made this choice to trust him. Mm, I see your point now. Okay. Well, I have no more to discuss on this page. We do have letters in the mailbox, but it's been a long episode. It's been a long episode, and as usual, it's you know I don't know that listeners want their letters (laughs) associated with the subject matter of today's page. So maybe we'll uh, we'll roll them down the road a little bit. That said, we are coming up on the the final stretch. So if you still have a a thought, you should send them uh, to us in a letter. Because, uh, you know, after a while, we'll be done the book. Send them now so that they end up in the mailbag. I mean, theoretically, we could just do interstitial episodes of letter reading. <laughs> we probably will. But if you want your your letter to be read on the page. With the page. Yeah. With the page. Now's the time. Certainly more likely to be heard by our wider audience if it is with the page. Certainly. I, I for one, would uh, once we, if I was a listener and we finished the book, going in the trash I don't want to hear you talk. I just want to hear you talk about the book. <laughs> well, listeners, you're in luck. You have 150 more episodes of us talking about the book on tomorrow's page. Of uh, the. Wee- wee-